Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. 16, if you are in first grade and down below, you may now leave to go to Children's Church. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. And as you're turning there, I have a confession to make this morning. Everybody's always scared when the pastor's about ready to give a confession. Here's the confession. I love to watch The Celebrity Apprentice. Well, that's my confession. Uh, I'm serious. I like to hear the words off of Donald Trump's lips. You're fired. Now, The Celebrity Apprentice is an interesting show. What their attempt is, is to try to get all these people <clears throat> from all these different backgrounds to come together, to work together as a team, to try to accomplish something important. And what ends up happening is a very disgusting, yet interesting, fascinating peek into the deep recesses of human nature. There's usually catfights. There's usually backbiting. There's throwings under the bus. There's super huge egos. Now, this year it's very interesting. They have Clay Aiken and Arsenio Hall and Debbie Gibson and the Lou Ferrigno, the guy that plays the Hulk and the lead sis, uh, singer of Twisted Sister. And in years past, they've had Joan Rivers and Brett Michaels. You've had country and western stars paired up with hip-hop actors. And, and the attempt is to try to bring all these different people, all these diverse people together to accomplish some type of task. And this idea of trying to create unity out of diversity often fails miserably. <coughs> Excuse me this morning, I'm fighting a little bit of a, of a cough. Our culture values diversity, don't they? I mean, look at the basis of every reality television show. Isn't almost every reality television show different people from different backgrounds coming together to try to get along, whether it's in a house or on a boat or on a deserted island? It's this whole idea of bringing people together to try to make things work. And what ends up happening is that it often fails miserably and shows us human depravity. When we were in Louisville this past week, I can't tell you how many times we saw the bumper sticker that said coexist. You've seen those around, right? With all the different religious symbols. Everybody wants to just coexist. And can there really be true unity among diversity without the power of the gospel? You see, what our culture so desperately wants, because our culture wants it, our culture wants everybody from different backgrounds to come together and be unified. They're crying for that. And my answer to that is the only way that's ever going to happen is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's what the gospel does. The gospel puts us all on the even playing field. The gospel says you're all guilty, you're all dead, you're all lost, you're all separated from God, you're all hopeless, and the only hope you have is to be rescued by Jesus Christ and His cross and His grace. And that's what we see 
in the planting of the church at Philippi. Remember a few weeks ago, before Easter, we attempted to answer the question, how does God plant a church? And the biblical answer is he does it through opening up a person's heart to respond to the gospel. We saw that with Lydia. God opened her heart to respond to the gospel, and then a church was planted in her house. The power of the gospel brought new birth to sinners. That's what the gospel does. It brings new birth. And and if you remember, we're going to jump right back into Acts. And and we have to kind of set the stage because I know last week we took a a detour from Acts, but, but Paul and Barnabas have separated ways. If you remember from a few weeks ago, Paul leaves, goes to Macedonia. He wants to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit says, you can't go to Asia. He has the vision of the guy from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. They go over to Macedonia. He takes Timothy and Silas along with him, and then they go down to the river in the, in the town of Philippi, that key city. Lydia's there. God opens her heart, and the church is planted in her house. But that's only the beginning of this Philippian church. We have a whole book in our Bible called the book of Philippians. It was how this church, the Philippi church, was planted. There's two other major events that come together to plant this church. Not only Lydia, but there's two other events, and they really show us the unifying power of the gospel. God's going to do the unthinkable when he plants this church. He's going to take three people from the most diverse of backgrounds, racially, culturally, socially, and he's going to do a work of grace in their lives to bring these three unlikely people together to plant the church in Philippi. So let's see this unfold. We're picking up where we left off a few weeks ago with Lydia being converted to Christ. She was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a fashionista, if you will. She was in the fashion industry at the time. She was a wealthy woman. God saves her. So let's look at verse 16 of Acts chapter 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowds joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, Lydia was converted first. She's the fashionista, if you will. She's the dealer in purple cloth. She's the fashion woman, the rich, wealthy businesswoman whom God saves and the church is planted in her home. And so the next person we're going to see is the exact polar opposite of Lydia. If Lydia had everything, if Lydia was wealthy, if Lydia was this prominent woman, then the slave girl has nothing. She has nothing. Now she earns money, but she doesn't get to keep her money. She's used and abused and exploited by her slave owners. 
She's got this spirit of divination that gives her the ability to be a fortune teller, and so her owners are taking advantage of that and exploiting her for their own purposes. And this is Paul's second encounter with demonic opposition in the book of Acts. The first time is back in Acts chapter 13 when he faced Bar-Jesus, that false prophet. And in verse 16, it says that she had a spirit of divination, literally a python spirit, a python spirit. Now, what in the world's a python spirit? In Greek mythology, python was the name of the snake that lived in the oracle of Delphi that killed Apollo. And the python soon came to be known with the underworld. And so this is a demonic snake girl, if you will. She's a python girl. She has a python spirit. And she's possessed by this pythonic demon that gives her the ability to tell fortunes. She's got a spirit of divination. She's a spirit medium. She's clairvoyant, if you will. And we know from the scriptures that this is strictly forbidden. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 10 through 12, Paul, uh, God says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortune or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a lizard or a necromancer for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And so she's doing an abominable thing. She's possessed by this python spirit, this python demon, the snake girl. And she's going around and she's following Paul and Silas and she's crying out, listen to these guys because they're telling you the way of salvation. Now, at first glance, that sounds like she's doing the right thing, doesn't it? It sounds like she's helping Paul out in his ministry by following him around and drawing attention to Paul. But if you look closer at Greek mythology and you look closer at what she's doing, you realize why Paul is so annoyed. She refers to God as the Most High God. Now, remember, this is not Israel. This is not Jerusalem. This is Philippi. These are pagans who have no concept who the Old Testament God is. And so what she's doing here, she's not talking about Jesus. She's not talking about repentance. She's not talking about sin. What she's doing is she's basically saying that what Paul is preaching is just like any other belief system among these Greek religions. She's trying to confuse people into thinking that what Paul is saying it's just one of many messages in the culture. And what's going to happen is if the people see her giving credence to what Paul's saying, then you basically have a demon on Jesus' side, and that's not a good thing. She's trying to associate Paul's message with the occult. She's basically coming along and confusing people by, by, by trying to throw confusion into the mix. If, if they hear this girl speaking and realize that she's somehow involved with Paul, they may think, Paul, well, Paul's Python. Paul's part of this ancient oracle of Delphi. Paul must be part of Greek mythology. And that's the seductive strategy of Satan. Notice what Satan does. Does Satan outright oppose Paul's message. Does Satan just come out and say, don't listen to Paul? No, Satan's, Satan's trickier than that. What does Satan do? He says, I'm going to throw some confusion into the mix. I'm going to make this sound kind of like it's Christian, but not quite. Isn't that what's going on in our evangelical world today? False teachers are everywhere. If you haven't turned on Christian radio or Christian television, I advise you not to, because you will be encountered with a lot of false teachers. But do false teachers just throw out the Bible? Does a false teacher come up and have a, a name badge saying, hey, I'm Satanist? No. 
False teachers use the Bible, don't they? They use the name Jesus. They may say the same things, but what do they do? They bring in sneaky, creepy ways to distort or to confuse people. They, they, what, what does it say about, about Satan? He comes as an angel of light, right? 2 Corinthians 11, 13-14. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan distinguishes himself or disguises himself as an angel of light. I want you to think about this poor girl for a moment. Not only is she being exploited by her owners for gain, but she's also possessed by a demon. And she's going around and she's annoying Paul. Now we know Paul, he's, he's, he's annoyed. He's not going to want to deal with it anymore. He doesn't want there to be any confusion. He doesn't want his message to be confused. And so he turns around to the girl, and in verse 18 it says he's greatly annoyed. She kept doing this for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. The word in the original language there means that he was disturbed. He was disturbed. I think he was disturbed on two accounts. Now, the text doesn't tell us this, but I think we can read between the lines. Number one, I think he's disturbed that this young girl's being exploited. He looks at this poor slave girl, and he's disturbed that she's being exploited by her owners. But he's also disturbed that she's being used by Satan to be a mouthpiece of evil. And so what does he do? He looks at her and says come out. Now, there's no elaborate exorcism going on here. He just turns and simply addresses the demon, and the demon comes out. There was an exorcism. She was exorcised of the demon. So, did she become a Christian? The text doesn't tell us that she ever became a Christian. All it says is that the demon left her. Now, we're left to guess. Many scholars believe that since she comes between the story of Lydia, who was saved, and the Philippian jailer that we're going to see in just a moment who was saved, that she indeed was saved as well. And I take that as well. I believe that she was saved. And what this does, girls, young girls, it gives you hope if you are in an abusive relationship. You have a powerless young girl here that's being abused and exploited by corrupt men for gain. And what the gospel does is it can liberate you from that situation. And so what happens is the python spirit's gone. And guess what? She can no longer be a fortune teller, so she's useless. You know, that's what corrupt men do to women. When you stop performing, they throw you out. And that's what they do to this young girl. She's no longer useless. She's no longer performing. She's no longer making us money. So they get mad with Paul and Silas and say, you've taken away our ability to make money. And probably what happened was, think about this young slave girl that had been tormented by a demon is now saved, is now free. I just imagine Lydia, this older, wealthy woman, saying, come into my house and we'll take care of you. I believe she was probably welcomed by that church in Philippi. She was thrown out by these men. She was abused, and she was no longer useful. But here's the great irony in the gospel. That's not what happens when you become a Christian, does it? When God saves you, you're forgiven. You're whole, you're new, and you're precious and valuable in the sight of God. You're adopted into his family. 
You're changed from the inside out. You're part of a community that cares for you, that loves you and supports you. And so what these men were doing in exploiting her and abusing her, she was liberated from that and drawn into a church family that loved her. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel saves. And there's a play on words in verse 18 and 19. In verse 18, it said... I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very day. Okay, The Spirit came out of her. Verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, the word gone there and the word came out of her is the same word. In other words, think of it this way. When the demon was exercised, their hope of having any financial gain was exercised. They lost their ability to make money. And so these corrupt, abusive slave owners who were upset when their young girl isn't performing anymore turn and say, Paul and Silas, it's your fault. You've lost our ability to make money. And so what do they do? They drag them into the city, have them beaten. And notice what they say. Verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. Not only are they corrupt, not only are they slave owners, but they're also anti-Semitic. These Jews. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. They were very proud of being Roman citizens. They did not like any outsiders coming in and and disturbing things, especially these Jews. Now, what do we see what happens when Paul enters a city and starts preaching the gospel and people get saved? What happens every time Paul starts preaching the gospel? He gets beaten up. He gets slapped in the face, and now what happens? He gets thrown into prison. How would you like that to happen to you? Every time you open your mouth to share the gospel, you get beaten or jailed. Now, thankfully, we live in a culture right now that doesn't quite do that. We still have religious freedoms, but there are people, brothers and sisters around the world right now who are being beaten and imprisoned and flogged for their faith. But here's the issue. Gospel, the gospel brings change. What happened to this? What happened to to the situation here? It brings a transformation in the very economic fabric of this this culture because here's what's happening. This girl is saved. She's transformed. She repents. She leaves that life. And then what happens? Her owners are are financially out of luck. Think about what would happen in Las Vegas. What would happen if the gospel so penetrated Las Vegas that all the prostitutes, all the call girls, all the bar owners, all the casino owners got saved and repented and changed. Do you think it would affect the economic fabric of Las Vegas? Yes, it would be affected. And yet, in the beating of Paul and Silas, these town rulers have no idea what they're doing because they're Roman citizens. This should not have happened to Roman citizens. At this point, they had no idea that these aren't illegal, these aren't illegal aliens, Jews that were illegal aliens. These are actually Roman citizens, and you could not beat and imprison a Roman citizen. And so up to this point, we've got to ask ourselves, okay, how does God plan a church? Okay, you go down to the river, you see a fashionista, fashion woman, rich woman, she gets saved, and then this python snake girl that's going around following Paul and chasing after him turns around and demons cast out, and then Paul begins to preach, and then he's thrown into prison. That's how a church is planted. Now, we're not planning a church at Emmanuel, but let's just say we were. Let's say God put up on our hearts to plant a church. 
And God said, okay, here's how it's going to go. I'm going to save a wealthy businesswoman. You're going to start meeting in her house, but there's going to be this little annoying girl that's going to follow you around. She's going to be possessed by a demon. She's going to start fortune-telling, and then your church-planning missionary who we appointed is going to get thrown into prison. You want to plant a church now, Emmanuel? Do you really want to plant a church? That's what we see in the book of Acts when churches are planted. And it's amazing what God does through the power of the gospel. Who would have thought that the first two members of the church in Philippi would be a fashionista and a snake girl? A wealthy business fashion woman and a poor little slave girl possessed by a demon. Doesn't God have a sense of humor of bringing together Paul's most beloved church? These are the first two members that we find out, besides Lydia and her household, of the Philippian church. And yet there's a third person God uses to help plant this church. You got the fashionista, you got the snake girl, and then you've got, like many in this room, a middle class prison worker. Probably retired military as well. A prison worker. You ready to see what happens next? Let's look at verse 25. Okay, they're in prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. (coughs) Excuse me. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. How does the the beginning of Philippians, Philippians 1, 12 through 14, Paul gives a little bit of a a preview here, a a flashback to, to what happened here in the jail. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment caused the advancement of the gospel. And here's God saving a prison worker. Now, here's where the story gets even amazing. Think of all that Paul and Silas have been through up to this point. Chased around by a snake girl, beaten and flogged, you're thrown in prison, the church you tried to plant, you're no longer part of that. What would you guys do if you were thrown into prison? Let's just be honest, what would we do? We would have a pity party, we would complain to God, we would bemoan our situation. Why am I here? Oh God, you must, you must hate me, this is really terrible. But what, what do these guys do? They start singing. At midnight, they start praising God at midnight. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They're in the inner stockades praising God in the midst of being flogged and imprisoned for their faith. They express joy in the midst of suffering. And that's what the New Testament tells us. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Listen to Paul. 
More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. The scriptures tell us to rejoice in trials, and that's what these guys are doing. It's midnight, and they're singing and praising God, and then there's a mighty earthquake. And all the prisoners escape, except they really don't escape. And the prisoner, the prison worker, the jailer, decides to commit suicide until Paul stops him. Now, let me ask you, some of you guys that work in the prison, a lot of you work in the prison, what would happen to you if all the prisoners on your watch just escaped? Would some of you want to commit suicide? I don't know. It's a big deal to have all the prisoners escape. And this guy's like, I'm toast. I know if, if I don't get killed from this, I might as well just kill myself. And Paul stops him. And here's the amazing thing. Paul says, we're all here. There was no prison escape. The prisoners didn't escape. Now, we don't know why they didn't escape. It could have been they were listening to Paul and they heard the worship. But the text tells us in verse 30 a powerful question. What does the Philippian jailer say in verse 30? Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Have you ever asked that question before? How, how do I get saved? Have you ever somebody, somebody come to you and say, how, how do I get saved? What must I do to be saved? How can I have a right relationship with the living God? How can I have my sins forgiven? How can I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? How can I be saved? What must I do? Now let me, let me, let me bring some clear understanding to this very simple question because there's a lot of misunderstanding about the answer. What does Paul say? Very simply, And they said, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. First of all, in order to be saved, you must believe. That's more than just having the facts about Jesus. It's more than just thinking in your head, Jesus is a great guy. Believing in the Bible means placing your entire trust embracing Jesus, flinging yourself at Jesus, totally embracing, trusting in Christ alone to save you. It's like bungee jumping. I've never bungee jumped before, and if you have, you're crazy. You jump off of a bridge with a little rubber band that you think is going to save your life, and you're going to snap back up. Bungee jumping, right? Okay, so let's say you're on the edge. It would be nice to bungee jump off this, so it's like three feet. Let's say you're off this like 200-foot bridge, and you're about to bungee jump. And you look at the bungee cord, and you like the color of the bungee cord, and you like the feel of the bungee cord, and you believe in the bungee cord, and you have great faith in that bungee cord. Have you truly trusted the bungee cord? No, not until you put the bungee cord on and what? Do something really stupid and jump. And you trust that bungee cord to what? Spring you back up and be saved. Now, Jesus is more glorious than a bungee cord, okay? But it's the same thing. You can believe in Jesus all you want by looking at him and and thinking about him and believing he existed, but until you give your entire life to Jesus, 
until you trust him, that's not true saving faith. You have to bank your entire life upon Jesus. Secondly, what does Peter say, or Paul say there? Believe in the Lord Jesus. The Lord. We must confess Jesus as Lord. Now, many people like Jesus as Savior, right? Who wouldn't want Jesus as their Savior? I get out of hell free card. I get all my sins forgiven. Who doesn't want that? But you can't take Jesus as Savior without taking him as Lord. Lord means he has absolute rights over your life to tell you how to live, to be your sovereign, to be your king. You submit to his lordship. You die to yourself and you live to Christ. Instead of you being on the throne of your life, Christ is on the throne of your life. He is your king. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth what? Jesus is Lord. Philippians 2, this is the letter to the Philippians. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I've said this many times before, and I'll say it again. You don't make Jesus the Lord of your life. He already is Lord, regardless of what you do with him. You don't make Jesus Lord. He already is Lord. He's Lord because he's the sovereign of the universe. Now, what we do is we don't make Jesus Lord, but we bow to him as Lord. We submit to him as Lord. We confess to him as Lord. And one day, the Bible says, even if you're in hell, you're going to confess Jesus as Lord. It's going to be too late, but even those that are dying in hell will one day confess Jesus as Lord. He won't be their Savior, but they will be under his Lordship in hell. So better to bow the knee now than then to the Lordship of Christ. So believe in the Lord Jesus. Now notice the the third thing. The, The question that the jailer asks is, what must I do? And notice that Paul doesn't give him any things to do. He doesn't say, okay, obey the Ten Commandments, go to church, be baptized, uh, uh, say a certain prayer. He, he, he simply says, believe. So here's the third thing about saving faith. You can't do anything except believe. It's by grace alone. It's a free gift. And even that, that faith that you have to believe is a gift that God's given you. So there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. It's simply by believing in Jesus. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now God reaches down in his grace and saves this blue-collar prison worker, and what does he do? Immediately he shows evidence of his salvation by washing their wounds he, 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 he comes, there's a repentance, there's a transformation, and notice what else happens. Look at verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you, you, and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all were in the house, and he took them, the, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his entire family. Can't get away from it. He was baptized. Who was baptized a few weeks ago? Lydia was baptized. The Philippian jailer is baptized. Almost every time you see somebody get saved in the Bible, they are getting baptized 
to obey the lordship of Christ. Now, I'm not going to harp on baptism because it seems like almost every week I'm harping on it because it's in the Bible. Well, let me just say this. I am not asking you to do anything that the Lord Jesus Christ would not ask you to do. If Christ were here, he would say, under his lordship, be baptized. And I'm not asking you to do anything that we haven't already seen repeated in Acts. Once they get saved, they are baptized. So again, if you have trusted Christ for salvation and you have not been baptized, then you need to look at the issue of lordship. Are you submitting to the lordship of Christ in doing what he's calling you to do in obeying him in baptism? We see it all throughout the book of Acts. But notice another repeated theme besides baptism is joy. Once a person gets saved, there's tremendous joy. Look at verse 34. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He had joy. Have you ever been around a new Christian that gets, just gets saved? They seem to have what? That exuberance, that childlike wonder, that faith, that excitement. Uh, they don't, may not know all the answers, but they're zealous, they're excited, they're joyful. They want to tell the entire world. Would that we have been Christians a long time have that same passion, that same joy? Listen to what John Piper says in his book, Desiring God, about joy. He says, Sometimes the childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and the poetry and the music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach in the back of the refrigerator. In the end, the heart longs for God himself. To see him and know him, to be in his presence is the soul's final feast. Beyond this, there is no quest. Words fail. Has your love for Jesus dried up like a forgotten peach in the back of the refrigerator? What an image. Let's continue reading because Roman citizenry, citizenship becomes an issue. Let's look at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. So the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Here's the issue. Basically, they come to Paul and say, okay, let's just usher you out of here. And Paul's like, ain't gonna happen. You guys publicly beat us. You publicly flogged us. You publicly put us in prison. We are Roman citizens. You're not going to usher us out of town secretly. You're going to do this thing publicly. You're going to apologize to us, and we're going to make a big deal of it. That's just like Paul to do that. And then when they found out that they were actually Roman citizens, they got really afraid. And so they just said, okay, we're going to usher you guys out of the city. You got to leave. You got to leave Philippi. And before they leave Philippi, what do they do? Verse 40 tells us what they do before they leave. Because next week we're going to see they go down to Thessalonica. Verse 40, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. What do they do? They go to the church that was planted in her home and they spend time encouraging, teaching, strengthening that church. Now, we don't know how long Paul was in Philippi before he got arrested, but probably not very long. And think about if you're Paul, okay? Think about Paul for a moment here. Okay, fashionista, snake girl, prison worker. This is my core of my church. And now I've been thrown out of town and I can't go back. How is this Philippian church going to survive with these three people? Very ironic. 
What do the opening pages of the book of Philippians tell us? How does Paul start his letter? Paul had to leave Philippi. He had to trust that God was going to finish what he started there. And that's how Philippians starts. Philippians 1, 3-6, what does Paul say to the Philippians? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What was the first day when Lydia got saved there by the riverside? And look at verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I got to get out of town. I'm not able to go back and, and help this infant church, but I'm confident that what God started he's going to complete. So what three people does God use to save a church? Fashionista, snake girl, and prison worker. John Stott says this, it would be hard to imagine a more diverse group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the jailer. Racially, socially, and psychologically, they were worlds apart, yet all three were changed by the same gospel and were welcomed into the church. Listen to Paul's words in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Only the power of the gospel can do something like that. Politics can't. Reality television can't. Legislation can't. Hobbies and special interests can't. The United Nations can't. Only God can take a ragtag group of people from all different backgrounds and bring them together as a family. Have you ever noticed that when you've met a Christian from a different background? Let's say you're, you're on a plane or you go to another area and you find a Christian that's a different background, a different race, a different, a different nationality, maybe a different, a different sex. What happens when you begin to talk with them? There's an immediate connection, right? Because you're a Christian. Now, what's the application for us as Emmanuel Baptist Church? We're, we're not in the process of planning a church right now with the exception of our Hispanic work that meets on Tuesday night. We need to continue to pray for that, but we don't really have a, a strategic plan to go plant this church. So the question is, how does God plant a church? Well, in 1954, God already did that. He, he planted Emmanuel Baptist Church. And look around this room this morning. Is there a beautiful diversity here that can only be explained by the power of the gospel? Yes. If you look around this room and you, and, you, and you do a survey of Emmanuel Baptist Church, you've got, you've got successful businessmen and you've got stay-at-home moms. You've got white-collar professionals, you've got farmers, you've got oil field workers, you've got railroad people, you've got construction, you've got prison workers, you've got retail salespeople, you've got white, Hispanic, black, Asian, African, and everything in between. You've got rich, you've got poor, you've got men, and you've got women. Where else in culture does that happen? That doesn't happen other places. Only in the church does that happen. Through the power of the gospel, all those barriers come crashing down through Christ. And God can come together and say, I'm going to take people from all different backgrounds, all different nationalities, all different socioeconomic, all different issues, and I'm going to bring them together to be one big happy family called the church. And that's what we are. We're a church family that God has brought us together. Why? Why has God brought us together to be the church? Because what does our culture desperately want to see? Our culture wants unity among diversity, don't they? I mean, reality TV, all these things, people want there to be a coexisting of all these different people. It's not going to happen out in the world. It will happen in the church. And so when God does that, it's a testimony to a watching world that only God can take people from diverse backgrounds and bring them together as a family. Do you realize that we as a church are a witness to what the world wants? The diversity among 
or unity among diversity. Now, I want you to do something. Turn to the book of Philippians. It wouldn't be appropriate to end our little journey in the planning of the Philippian church without going to the book of Philippians. So turn there real quickly, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. How did Paul plant the church? Fashionista, Lydia, snake girl, the little slave girl, and then the jailer, the prison worker. These three diverse people came together, and we have to assume that that the church probably reflected a lot of different socioeconomic, racial, ethnic backgrounds coming together as a church. So so what does Paul address in chapter 2? Let's look at verses 1 through 8. So, Paul says, in Philippians chapter 2, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 often says, have this same attitude. So Paul says, I want you to get along. I want you to be united. I want you to be humble. I want you to put others' needs. I want you to come together in diversity and be unified. I want you to have the same attitude as Jesus. What was Jesus' attitude? Paul doesn't have to let us guess. He tells us what Jesus' attitude is. Look on, verse 6, Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not commit count equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how can we possibly do this? How can we who are so diverse come together and be one big happy family? It gets along only through Christ. Not only the example that Christ laid for us by giving up all of his rights in heaven and coming to die on the cross, not only his example, but also his sacrificial death gives us the power to do that. It all comes back to the gospel. So think about this. If God can save a fashionista, a snake girl, and a prison worker and create a church out of that, just think what he can do with Emmanuel Baptist Church with all of us weirdos. Okay, I'm being honest. Think of what God can do, his power. And this is what the amazing thing about the church is. No other organization, no other entity on the planet can have this much diversity with unity because of what Christ does to break down those barriers. And let us as a church be a testimony to a watching world that wants to see that, that when they come into this place, they say, how do you guys get along? How do rich and poor and men and women and boys and girls and different people from socioeconomics and different races, how do you guys all get along? How do you guys, how do you do it? And we say, it's not because of anything within us, it's all because of our Savior that brings us together. His name is Jesus Christ and we submit to his Lordship. Let's always submit to the Lordship of Christ under the unifying power, the unifying power of the gospel. We saw it in Philippi. May the unifying power of the gospel be a reality at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and and you're asking the question in your head, what must I do to be saved? 
and you are not saved, I would say, what are you waiting for? Believe, trust, like you would that bungee cord, trust in Jesus Christ to save you. Confess him as Lord, not only to save you from your sins, but to be the Lord of your life. Confess him, bow the knee to him as Lord. Come to him this morning in faith and repentance. Cry out to him. And and the Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For the rest of us who are saved, maybe this morning it's just a matter of saying, am I truly experiencing the unifying power of the gospel? Am I striving for unity? Am I trying to get along with others? Am Am I trying to welcome those that may be different from me? Do we at Emmanuel have a good picture of races and cultures and and ethnicities and socioeconomic all coming together and those things all basically come crashing down when we come together as the church because we love each other in Christ? Are we experiencing the unifying power of the gospel? And, and, And how am I contributing to that? Spend some time this morning in prayer asking the Lord to reveal to you in your heart and your mind what his plan is for you this morning. Because of Jesus, that we're unified. Lord, I thank you that you planted this church in Philippi with with just the the diversity. Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer coming together to meet in this woman's house to begin what was Paul's most beloved church, the church at Philippi. Lord, what a beautiful picture of the unifying power of the gospel. May we be a church that experiences that. May we be a church that loves one another, accepts one another, prays for one another, cares for one another. Lord, my my other prayer this morning is this as well. If there's any young girl or woman in this place that's trying to find her identity in a boy or a man in an ungodly way, that today, Father, you would liberate her from that and she would find her identity in Christ. And Lord, if there are any men in this place that are being corrupt abusers and exploiters of women in ungodly ways, would you smack them and cause them to repent? Father, would the liberating power of the gospel flow through this place where people's identities come through Christ? And Lord, if there's anyone that's lost in this place this morning that's, that's not saved, would today be their day of salvation? Would they cry out like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Would many believe for the very first time this morning? We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.